Richard, it's lovely to have you with us again, and uh, we look forward to, to hearing you, you speak to us later. The first reading Maureen is going to read for us, and that is from Isaiah chapter 25. And, oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh, I now pronounce Youth Church Open. Um, please go to your classes and, and uh, enjoy, learn lots, and come back and tell us what you've learned. So would everyone like to wave to Youth Church as they go out? Cheerio. You can tell I'm having a bit of a hassled morning this morning. But Maureen, speak to us from Isaiah chapter 25. Thank you. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvellous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, And like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people's A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride, despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls, 
and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. You have done marvellous things, things planned long ago. Rosie's going to read to us now from Luke chapter 15. Richard's asked that we, that we read from Luke chapter 15. That's what he's going to be talking about. So. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Does that passage ever lose its power to shock, to surprise, to encourage? And Richard, we look forward to hearing you speak from that. We're going to sing together now, My Jesus, My Saviour, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. And we've seen the wonders of God's mighty love expressed in in that passage there, in the parables of the prodigal son, the lost coin and and the lost sheep. So let's sing together. Well, I'm very pleased to, to welcome Richard to, uh, to come and, and share with us today. So, so Richard, would you come and um, share with us your thoughts? Thanks. Um, it's lovely to be here. It's been a few years, I think, since I've been up to uh, Manchester. It was it's sunny, it's sunny in Birmingham this morning, and as I arrived in Manchester, it was raining. So I don't know if that's what happens here all the time. But we're going to be looking at um, this parable, which is one of my favourites, really, because... Because it's about me and it's about my life and it's probably about your life too. Um, But before we turn to Luke 15, I just want to have a look at a bit of context. And that context is um, Abraham living in what was called a patriarchal society. Right Now, patriarchal society meant that it was all about the father. um, And uh, as a real strong um, concept that was around in patriarchal societies was this idea of redeem. Can you all say redeem, please? Now, we've all heard the word redeem, and we we read it in multiple passages, and this is what it is in Hebrew. In uh, Hebrew, you say ga'al. Can we say ga'al? I don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it, but that's how I say it. And when you think about the word redeem, you probably um, can think of passages like in Exodus, it says, I will redeem you with a, a mighty hand. In Isaiah, it says... Say to Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. And then in Luke, it talks about the fact that God has redeemed his people. There's there's multiple examples of of this word, redeem. But it's not just a biblical idea. It's an idea that's used in the Bible, but it preceded the Bible. It was the culture. It was a society that someone like Abraham lived in. 
that redeeming was something that was happening. Now, what was that? So, to explain it, um, I want you to imagine that we're a family. Imagine that. Imagine that we're a family. Now, this is called, um, this building is called the Bethel, isn't it? Does anyone know what Bethel means? House of God. So, Bet means house and El is God. Um, Bethlehem, what does Bethlehem mean? House of bread, where Jesus was born. So um, I'm going to coin a new one, which is Bet Arb. Bet Arb, what do you think Bet Arb means? Father, yeah. So my name's, uh, let's call me Abe, all right? So I'm the dad, I'm the father. Can everyone say hi, Abe, to me, please? Hi, Abe, yeah. So, So I'm the dad, so Bet Arb. And this is, for the sake of this story... You're all my family, you're my sons and their wives and my daughters and their children and extended family, some friends, some strangers that have come into the, the house, the servants, all, all of that. So, so that's who I am. I'm Arb and called Abe and you are my family. It's my responsibility to take care of you. Now, some of you will be going out to do some work later on. Some of you will be shearing the sheep, perhaps, and selling the wool down at the um, down at the market. Some of you will be selling meat somewhere, I suppose. Uh, I don't know what you'll be doing, John. You'll probably be uh, putting your feet up somewhere, resting, yeah? So, But we'll all, we'll all have different jobs, and we'll all be do, doing different things, and the income from that you'll give to me. And I will try and use that income to make sure you're fed, Make sure you're watered, make sure that you're clothed, you've got somewhere to stay. Does that sound fair enough? That sounds like a good deal. It's my job to look after you and to make sure that you're okay. But it's more than that. Because if one of you got marginalised, if one of you got lost, if one of you got injured, if one of you got captured, if one of you made a bad investment and lost some of the property... It would be my job to use the resources to rescue you, to bring you out of that mess that you've made, to bring you back into Bet Arb, into the Father's house. Whatever it takes, and I think that's the the key point, because you're a loved part of this family, because I love you, because you're my child, my my in, whatever you, because I love you, I want you back. And if you get yourself lost and in a mess... I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to use that money that I've got, the resources, the sheep, whatever it is, to make a bargain, to to plea for you, to get you to come back. So this idea of redeem, it's not just save. I mean, I don't know how you think about this word redeem, but it's not just save. It's restore to the household. It's to bring you back from the place where you are. Now, that's great, isn't it? But what happens when I die? Well, as you know, Um, When the patriarch dies, you've heard of the double portion going to the firstborn. Now, why was that? Why was the firstborn? Why did the firstborn have a double portion? Now, was it because he was liked better? No, it wasn't that. Imagine at Christmas time. I don't know how many of you have got siblings, or can you imagine though, when you um, at Christmas time, if the older brother or older sister got twice as many presents as the younger, it wouldn't make for a happy Christmas day, I don't think, would it? But it wasn't about that. It wasn't just like, well, the older brothers liked more. People rejoiced when the older brother had a double portion. And that was because it now became his responsibility to restore and to redeem and to rescue. He was going to use this double portion of resources to rescue you if you got lost or if you got into a mess. That's what he was going to do. 
If I get marginalized, my big brother's going to come and rescue me. That's the idea. That's why he had this double portion. So, here's the image then. So, obviously, God's uh, the father in this picture is God. His house is his people. Um, so, who are the firstborn? So, in the Bible, who does God describe as his firstborn? Can anyone tell me? It wasn't Jesus before Jesus. Israel, yeah, so it's from Exodus. And he says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So he says to Israel, look, I want to partner with you. You're my firstborn. I'm going to give you loads of resources so that you can go out and redeem a broken world. So that you can go out and rescue people who are lost. That's what I want you to do, Israel. But the problem is that, okay, they did sometimes, but they probably didn't do it just as God wanted them to do it. They didn't redeem and do the role that God wanted them to do. In fact, sometimes they would use their resources to just get fat, it says, in um, uh, various places. But in Ezekiel 34, for example, oh, you just, you just ate and ate and put your feet up. That's what you did with the resources. You should have been out saving and rescuing people. But they didn't. And so there was a second firstborn. So you are, you are right, it was Jesus. But God kind of says to G- about Jesus, you are my only begotten son. He says, right, well, if Israel didn't do it, I'm going to send my son. Um, and he is going to be my only begotten son. And so he gives all of these resources to Jesus now. Jesus, now you go out and you start rescuing the lost and bringing the marginalized back into the father's house. And those who have got enormous debt I want you to pay it off. So that is the context of Luke chapter 15. So when we come to Luke chapter 15, you've got to remember that there is this mission that God had given to his people to go out and rescue and care for and bring back into the father's house. And so when we come to Luke 15 and you've got these Pharisees who are at the door murmuring that Jesus is with these Pharisees and these sinners, I mean... Um, he then decides to speak to them with a story. And the first story he uses is about sheep. Now, are any of you here shepherds by any chance? Um, no, I didn't think so. I, I mean, I, I've, I don't know any shepherds. Uh, I've been to farms with my children, but that's about as, as close to shepherding I get. So, so what I'm saying is I have no idea about what in shepherding involves. But if you lived in the time of Jesus, I reckon you'd know a thing or two about shepherds. I know most, I think most people would know a shepherd. Roy, you're almost a shepherd, aren't you? Well, you live near sheep anyway, don't you? Yeah, well, there you go. So we could ask Roy for reference on this. But um, you've got some, did you say? You've got a sheep. All oh, right. Oh, they belong, you've nicked them. I see what you're saying. <laughs> anyway, so... So he tells this story about sheep, doesn't he? And you know, we know that Jesus is talking to a society that knows all about sheep. So when he comes up with this bit of the story um, where the sheep gets lost, uh, people are like, "Uh, hang on a second, that doesn't happen. Sheep do not go missing. The shepherd does not lose his sheep because this is his livelihood. He's not going to lose a sheep. So first part of Jesus' story is, um, that's crazy. What kind of shepherd would lose a sheep? Interestingly, um, if you look to Matthew's gospel, which we're not going to do, it talks about the sheep wandering off. 
Okay, so there's, there's two different ways to lose a sheep. Either the sheep can wander off itself, or in this passage it's saying you, uh, or the shepherd, has lost the sheep. Now, as soon as they, Jesus talk, starts talking about shepherds then, um, you know, there's passages in the Old Testament that your brain goes to. What passage would we go to? Uh, we've actually, did we sing about it? We did, didn't we? What passage would you sing, would you, um, would your brain go to? Yeah, so, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So you start to think, oh, the shepherd, well, what's the job of the shepherd? It's so that I won't, won't want. It's so that the shepherd's going to protect me and look after me. And you know those verses, and your brain just goes straight there. That's the job of the shepherd, you know that. Okay. Now, the shepherd goes out and he finds this sheep that gets lost. Have you ever thought about how difficult that was? I mean, it depends where the sheep was, I suppose. But if this sheep was in the desert, in the Judean desert, for example, it is baking hot. And this shepherd has what this sheep has wandered off to a point where it can't be seen. And uh, I think if you ask any shepherd, what, what you will find is that people will say that this sheep is not going to just wander back into the fold. It's going to get lost and it's going to feel like, well, I don't know where I'm meant to be now. So they lie down and they just wait to get eaten by hyenas or wolves or until they die of thirst. They, they're not going to find their way back to the flock. They wander off and they get lost and that's it. They are lost. And they're probably going to die. And here's a shepherd who goes out, puts him, puts this, finds this sheep in the middle of the baking day for it, I suppose it is, and puts this sheep on his shoulders and carries him back home, covered in sweat. Does anyone know how heavy a sheep is? Roy, how heavy is a sheep in kilograms? Heavier than that, Roy. You've got little sheep. I mean, I'm, I'm 70 kilograms, right? I know, 70 kilograms, that's good, isn't it? As a 42-year-old. But, um, so I'm, I'm 70 kilograms. So yeah, maybe 40 kilograms, 40 to 70 kilograms. Imagine how difficult that is picking someone. I mean, could you, Roy, could you put me on your shoulders and carry me home? You probably couldn't, could you? It, I mean, it's difficult. It's like this is hard work for a sheep to, for a shepherd to go and find this sheep. I don't know how many miles he's walked across the, this rocky terrain in the beating hot sunshine. Find this sheep and put it on his shoulders and then carry it home. This is difficult stuff that this sheep shepherd is doing. Can I just ask you as well, what's the state of this sheep, do you think? Do you think this sheep is healthy at this point? I think if this sheep had been well, let's say there was a sheep that had just got lost a few, you know, a few hundred metres away. If you went and found this sheep and he was well, he would just follow you back if you're the shepherd. This one isn't. He has to be put on his, the shepherd's shoulders. This is a sheep that has become dehydrated. I, I suppose it's pretty near to death. And there's a shepherd who's gone out and rescued this sheep. Now, uh, when he comes home then, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, come and rejoice with me. The one that was lost, the sheep that was lost, is now found. And then he does this weird thing. He says, well, um, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So he compares this sheep being rescued to a sinner who repents. Now here's the question. In this story, what did the sheep do? Tell me what he did. Absolutely nothing. Just went the wrong way and then he laid down to die. 
He did. So, so why does Jesus compare this to repentance? Because when I think of repentance, usually you think, oh, I've made a complete mess of everything. I'm going to turn around and go back. That's what I think of when I think of repentance. But does this sheep do that? It doesn't. So how, So what does the sheep, what's the only thing that the sheep has to do in this story? I, I put it to you that maybe the only thing the sheep has to do is allow himself to be carried home. That's all he has to do. Allow himself to be carried home. Who does all the work? It's this incredible shepherd who loves this sheep so much that he's walked for hours in the baking hot sunshine and carried this lost sheep home. It's incredible. So, what is the celebration for then? Yes, of course it's that a sheep has come home. Yeah, of course it is. We love it when sheep come home. But isn't it also that there's a shepherd who's willing to go through what the shepherd went through to rescue one of, one of his lost? Isn't that what we're celebrating too? Of course it is. How incredible that there's a shepherd who should come and find one who has been lost. Now, what the Pharisees thinking? So they're thinking about this idea of, oh gosh, um, there's a shepherd who's lost sheep. They're thinking about Ezekiel chapter 34. Um, can you just quickly turn there um, to Ezekiel 34? Um, Martin, can I borrow your Bible, please? In fact, Martin, can you look the passage up and then can I borrow your Bible, please? <laughs> so Ezekiel 34. And uh, these are people who obviously know the scripture. Thank you. Just have a very quick look. The whole passage is about how God is criticising the, the shepherds here for not doing their jobs. But have a look at the end. Verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. when, Because they've not done it. He says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd, Verse 12. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the, from the nations. This is, this is what God's saying. You, you didn't do the job, guys. So I'm going to have to do it. Remember the image of where Jesus is? There's these Pharisees that stood in the door murmuring. And here's Jesus sat with these lost people. I'm going to have to do it myself, says God. Okay, so we move on to Luke 15 then. And again, we've got this, this lady who's lost these, um, who's got these ten silver coins. I don't know really about the context of that. Some people say these ten silver coins were not just the money to buy food. It was, they had some significance, like they were given at her marriage or something. I don't know. But she loses one of these coins. And when she, uh, and then it says she, she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours and rejoices. I have lost my coin. Sorry, I have found my coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's a rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now imagine this woman then, she's lost this coin. And what does she do? She lights a lamp. Now, why is she lighting a lamp? It's because it's dark, right? 
Or at least it's to look in the dark places in her house. It may be that she's been searching all day, I don't, I don't know, but it's become dark and she now needs to light a lamp. She sweeps the house, she looks in every corner, in every crack of the floor. She looks in under the bed, she looks under the te- she's looking everywhere for this coin. And she finds it and she calls everyone, let's rejoice, let's rejoice. For I have lost, I have found my coin. So, of course, in this story, again, it compares the coin to somebody who is repenting. So let me ask you the same question. What does the coin do in this story? It doesn't do anything. It just gets itself into a mess, it seems. So why does Jesus link it to repenting? Could it be that all this coin needs to do is to be found? And allow itself to be rejoined with the other nine coins. And why does she celebrate? I have found. So of course, again, we're celebrating there's a coin that's been found and brought back to the others. But aren't we celebrating that there's a woman who is willing to go into the deepest parts of that house and that mess to find the one that was lost? See, we've called this the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the lost coin. Wouldn't it be better to call this the, the parable of the shepherd who didn't give up or the parable of the woman who loved, loved that coin so much that she looked, that she kept on looking? Wouldn't that be a better name for the, these parables, perhaps? And so what are the Pharisees at the door hearing? Well, guys, you've lost the sheep. You lost the coin. Are you willing to give everything you can to go and find them? Are you willing? Because if you're not, you're going to miss the celebration. (laughs) That's the sad thing about these Pharisees stood at the door. They're going to miss the joy of the celebration. Right. So the parable of of the lost son then. Bet Ab, father's house. The father's got all these resources that are there to be able to rescue the family members that go missing. So the son comes along and he wants his share. Now with that context then, can you see the impact of what he's asking for? Yes, of course he's saying, Dad, I wish you would. I don't care if you're dead or not. I just want my inheritance. But it's more than that. He's saying, I want the money, the resources that are usually used for rescuing other people. I don't care about them. I just want that money. Sell the land or the sheep or whatever it is you have to do. I just want that money. Can you see the impact that had on the wider family? This was a thing of shame and dishonour to this family. Shame and dishonour brought by this son's actions. Now, have any of you ever heard of Kazaza? Oh, you have. Wonderful. Um, The rest of you haven't, so that's not so wonderful. But we can learn about it now. So can we all say Kazaza together? Kazaza. It's a ceremony that happens. Um, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's a ceremony that happens. Uh, Well, first of all, it's written about in the Talmud, and it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's strong evidence to suggest it was a ceremony around at the time of Jesus, even though it's not written about in the Bible. But anyway, um, we'll have to suppose that. But it was a ceremony that took place if you married somebody of a lower social class than you, or if you took your, um, 
your belongings, your, your land, your money, and you lost it particularly to a Gentile. Is that right, Alex? So, yeah, exactly, a rejection ceremony. So what they would do is they would get you into the front of the village, they'd pull up a, a, um, a pot or a barrel with fruit or seeds in it, and they'd smash it on the floor, and this thing would break, almost to say, you are going to be fruitless in this village from now on. And then the guy would be rejected. You've got to know about that, I think, to understand what's about to happen. Because this young lad, he goes off, um, into a Gentile country, because there's pigs there, so it's a Gentile country, and he joins in with the sexual excesses of the world. Um, he has wild, living, extravagant, spent, it, he spent all this money. It was gone. He's in trouble. Now, um, I, I want to um, put a slightly different spin on this son coming home. Um, and you can, we can debate it afterwards if you want to. But... What I've often been told about this parable, uh, about this, uh, the return of the son, is that he repents. And actually, what we should do as a church is that we should be waiting for people that have gone astray to come back. And when they start making their journey back, then it's okay for us to go out and meet them. Of course, we're going to welcome them back into the church. That's how I've been taught this and I've learned about this. So that person who's gone off and is in a complete mess... We're going to wait for you to just kind of um, come to your senses and say, right, I'm going to go back. We're going to be the father looking out for them. And when they start coming back, right, they've made the first move, right, we can run out and go and meet them. That's how I've heard it taught. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this son is crafty. Um... Look at what the text says. When he comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants? So he comes to his senses. What it's saying is he just suddenly remembers, I'm in this famine now. And of course, my dad's rich. He's got, he's got servants who have got plenty of food. And I'm here starving to death. What am I doing? I've got to have a plan. That's what I think he's saying. I need a plan. What am I going to do? I'm going to go back to my dad and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So why don't I think that this is repentance? It sounds a bit like repentance, but I don't think it is. And it's partly because I don't know the Torah like this. I don't. But I think Jesus' listeners did. When they heard this sentence that that the lost son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, they would have known instantly that this was a quote from the Old Testament. Does anyone know where this is quoted from? This is quoted from another famine. Exodus chapter 10. And there's a famine where the whole land was darkened and all the plants have been uh, eaten, uh, all the fruit on the trees have gone, there's nothing green left in the land of Egypt And guess who says these words? Pharaoh, I have sinned against the Lord your God. Obviously in the New Testament it says against heaven because they wouldn't use the word of God, the name of God. But Pharaoh says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. It's exactly the same phrase. Therefore, forgive my sin. Was Pharaoh repentant? Not at all. He just wanted the famine to stop. And it's a bit like this for this son. I know what I'll say. I'll say what Pharaoh said. I'll go back and I'll get a job with my dad and I'll get some money again. 
and then I'll be on my way. That's what I wonder was going through this guy's head. And I'll come back to that in a second. Because the father was anxiously waiting for his son to return, looking out for him. And while he was still a long way off, the father sees him and is filled with compassion for him. And he runs. Now, this isn't just like a small jog. This is the father pulling up his skirt and running like an Olympic athlete. This doesn't happen in this society. You do not find elderly men running, certainly not bearing their legs. We're all thinking about John, aren't we? I know. Imagine, imagine seeing that. It would be a moment of huge dishonour for this man. Absolute shame for him and his family. So tell me, why does he run out to this boy who squandered all of his money on temple prostitutes and worked with pigs? Why does he run? Because if he doesn't get there first, Kazazar is going to happen. They're going to take this boy who's lost his inheritance to the Gentiles. They're going to smash this pot on the floor. And they're going to exile him from the village forever. So the son, has, the father has to get there first. He shames himself to rescue his son. And he throws himself on him. And he kisses his neck. What's missing? What is missing from how I would write the story? I'll tell you what's missing. is the father going up to the son, stopping a short distance from him and saying, So, where have you been then? How much money's left? How many women have you been with? What are you doing back here? There's none of that. There's no questions. There's no confession. There's no having to explain himself. There's just, look, I know, I know where you've been. And I love you so much that I just want you back. And so we see the effect of grace on this boy. And I, and I want to show you, just look at this deep, this tiny little detail. This is his This is his plan when he's off in a far-off land. In a far-off land, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. When he's been accepted by his dad, when his dad's kissed him and hugged him and brought him back in, what's different? Which bit's missing? The scheme's gone. The bit about how I'm going to work my way back into having money is gone. And so instead... The son stops with, I'm just not worthy. There's nothing I can do. I can't work my way back into this. I'm not gonna, I can't become one of your hired servants. It's a stupid idea. I'm just not worthy. Here's the point. The grace came first. The repentance, I think, comes in a response to the grace. Here is a father who shames himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What did God ask the sheep to do? Nothing, just be found. What did God ask the coin to do? Nothing, just be found. What does God ask us to do? To join in with redeeming this world. 
to calling people, to rescuing, to redeeming. Um, And so there's the killing of the fatted calf, there's the calling of the neighbours, there's the putting the music on. Just notice this, I'm about to finish, but just notice this. Um, uh, He kills the the calf. Adam had the the lamb killed. He puts a purple robe on him. God clothed him with Adam with the skin of this, the sheep. Adam was thrown out of the garden. The son is welcomed back in. It's the antitype to what happened in uh, Genesis chapter 3. So what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? And what is Jesus saying to us? Just to finish off, he's saying, yes, you've got to be holy. Of course, I know you've got to be holy, but it's more than that. It's about not standing in the doorway. It's about sitting down with those who are lost and broken. God's love is so great. It's tireless. It will rescue. It will love. It will call back. So my final passage from Isaiah 43, since you are precious in my sight, and this is God, is it God speaking to us? Is it God speaking to the world around us? Since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bring your children from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar. My daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring my sons from afar. We're going to drink uh, wine and eat bread. Foolishness of the cross. It wasn't that foolish, was it? It was um, a man who shamed himself so that we could be rescued. Thank you.